All right, yeah, so we're in 1 Timothy chapter 2. First Timothy chapter two. And we're going to look at verses one through eight. So why don't you guys stand with me and I'll read our text this morning. We'll let it just wash over us in some context here before we hear from it today. So uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2 verse 1. Therefore I exhort first of all that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am speaking the truth in Christ and not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth, I desire, therefore, that the men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. And so, Lord, as we come to the pastoral epistles once again, where a young pastor named Timothy is, is just given many commands and charges in, in how to lead a true, an effective, a powerful, an on-mission ministry. Lord, we just pray this word over our ministry here in Prineville, over your ministry here in Prineville, here at Calvary Chapel of Crook County, Lord. We want to bow our hearts and our minds and our faith and our conscience and our hope before your word. So much is spoken to us from Paul to Timothy, and we pray that you would bring application, hit it home in our hearts today. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Yeah, settle down there, Rusty. <laughs> Was that you? Oh, Nyla. You know, either way. You both are wearing a similar jacket. You know, okay, anyways. Let me read an inter... Let me get out of this hole here real quick. Amen. Yes. Thank you, Nyla. Uh, <laughs> let me read an introduction to this section uh, from... Chapel and Hughes commentary, I thought it was fitting. Uh, it says, on a dangerous sea coast where shipwrecks often occur, stood a life-saving station. The building was just a hut, and there was only one boat, but the few devoted members kept a constant watch over the sea, and with no thought for themselves, went out day and night, tirely searching for the lost. Many of those who were rescued and also others from the surrounding area wished to become associated with the station and to give their time, money, and effort for the support of its life-saving work. New boats were bought and new crews were trained. 
the life-saving station grew. In time, some of the crew became concerned that the station was so crude and poorly equipped, they felt that a more commodious place should be provided as the first refuge for those snatched from the sea. The emergency cots were replaced with beds, better furniture was purchased for the enlarged building, the station became a popular gathering place for its members, and they decorated it beautifully and furnished it exquisitely. Fewer members were now interested in leaving the plush station to go to the sea on life-saving missions, so they hired surrogates to do the work. However, they retained the life-saving motive in the club's decorations, and a ceremonial lifeboat lay in the room whereby club initiations were held. One dark, stormy night, a large ship was wrecked off the coast, and the hired crews brought in boatloads of cold, wet, half-drowned people. They were dirty and sick and, uh, and uh, obviously from distant shores. The station was in chaos. The event was so traumatic that the people contracted for outbuildings to be constructed so future shipwrecks could be processed with less disruption. Eventually, a rift developed in the station. Most of the members wanted to discontinue the station's life-saving activities as being unpleasant and a hindrance to their normal social life. Some insisted, however, that the rescue was their primary purpose and pointed out that they were still called a life-saving station. But the latter was ignored and told that if they wanted to keep life-saving as their primary purpose, they could begin their own station down the coast, which they did. Over time, those individuals fell prey to the same temptations as the first group, coming to care more about comforting one another than rescuing the perishing. After a while, a few, remembering their real purpose, split off to establish yet another life-saving station, and on and on it went. Today, if you visit the seacoast, you will find a number of impressive life-saving stations along the shore. Sadly, shipwrecks still occur in those waters, but most people are lost. Hughes goes on to say, the life-saving station is a parable with deep historical roots that reach all the way back to the coast off of ancient Ephesus. Paul's great fear was that the vibrant life-saving station in Ephesus, the principal lighthouse in Asia Minor, would put out its light or forget its mission. Indeed, there would be shipwrecks. And from even their own number, men like elders Hymenaeus and Alexander who'd abandoned faith and a good conscience. These interior defections so early in the life-saving ministry of the church at Ephesus were the real reason Paul wrote Timothy, who was to charge such men not to teach any other doctrine. The universality of the gospel seen in our text today shows the fact that the gospel is for everyone, and that was Paul's passion. And so I really appreciated that parable, that story of these life-saving stations off the coast of Ephesus, because of course, if you were catching it as it was being read, it's a picture of even, it could be our church today. We get so involved in our own comfort and pampering ourselves as Christians that we lose the purpose and the mission for which we were even put here in the first place, to save the lost, to seek and to save the lost. And with that being said, Paul says in verse 1, Therefore, I exhort, first of all, 
that supplications and prayers and intercessions and giving of thanks be made for all men. This is, of course, in context with chapter 1. You've got Paul speaking to this young pastor, telling him that, that men have crept in even from within their own eldership and have gotten off track. They begin giving too much attention to fables and and endless stories or endless genealogies that were just causing fights and factions within the church rather than building up the church, bringing godly edification. And in the last couple verses of chapter 1, he charges and gives gives a command to Timothy to keep on guard against those things. Because if we lose doctrine, then we lose a good conscience, we lose faith, We become ineffective and shipwrecked, the word is used there in verse 17. And then he calls out two guys that were apparently within the eldership. It was prophesied in Acts chapter 20 that these guys would be like savage wolves just dragging away the sheep. And with the purpose of the remedy, Hymenaeus and Alexander in verse 18 were delivered over to Satan. The language in the New Testament is delivered over to Satan so that their, that their flesh would be destroyed, so that their soul might be saved. This is, this is part of the severity of what God calls us to do when we're reaching out to erring brothers and sisters. There comes a point where they may be delivered over. It's, it's severe, it's harsh, but it's for not the purpose of getting them the heck out of here or making an example of them. It's so that there, a remedy could take place that they may learn not to blaspheme the last few words of chapter 1. With that being said, Paul says, therefore, in verse 1, I exhort, I plead with you, first of all, that, that prayer take place. So we see that this, first of all, the wording there tells us that there's something very important that Paul's going to say. There's a primary importance. And the context there is for the church to be involved even corporately in prayer. One of the first things that Paul says as he gets out of his introduction, he gets out of just kind of, remember what I told you about those false teachers. Because I've, been, I've warned you in the past about these false teachers and these guys creeping in, and even from among your own midst, It's so important, young pastor. It's so important, church in Ephesus. It's so important, church in Prineville, that you go to prayer. That you go to prayer. And then he gives four different types of prayer that as you do the study and you look at the dictionaries, there's a little bit of difference between each word here. Uh, but yet there's, there, there's even more similarities between them all. There's supplications and prayer and intercession and giving of thanks. And just quickly to go through it, it's, it's not all that important because they're all so similar. But, but supplication is a great part of our prayer. Supplication, it speaks of our prayer requests, if you will. Or our pleas to God, our entreaties. You know, in, in a way, that's almost every prayer. Does anybody have a prayer request here today? You know, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah, okay. I mean, it kind of covers everything. But then, and then it says, and also prayers. But I thought prayer, but then also prayer. Yeah, yep. (laughs) It's almost like saying, I encourage you strongly of primary importance that that (laughs) prayers and prayers 
And also, no, intercessions. It's right in front of you. It's right there. I mean, if you had your Bible, this is why it's important to have your Bible. Okay, of course. Uh, gotcha. It's what the preachers call pulling the rug out from under you. But this prayers, prayers speaks of the value of prayer. We value it. It speaks of the privilege of prayer, giving place for prayer. So prayer requests, giving place for prayer. Uh, Chuck Smith, the founder of Calvary Chapel, wrote a great book called The Privilege of Prayer. Sorry, Rusty, it's going to get a little spitty today. A lot of prayer talk today. But, uh, but there's a place for valuing prayer in the church. And then intercessions, which, which speaks of almost like crying out to someone that's over you, someone that is outranking you, that they would help you. Uh, it speaks of giving an interview in the, in the discussion. Uh, there's a leadership book that I love about D.L. Moody, this, this famous preacher from Chicago uh, during the time of the Civil War. And it was said that D.L. Moody was such a man of prayer that you'd be riding along in a carriage with him, and he'd just be talking to you like your buddies, and then he'd just start talking to God. Just like, you know, he'd see something, he'd just start talking, and, and a lot of the guys, at, at first it was just, it was like, wait, me? No, oh, 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 yeah, yes, yes. Yes, God. Okay, we're done? Okay, no, we're not done. We don't, you know. Um, in a way, I'm reminded of, of when I was a high school pastor, and one of my kids, when I was a high school pastor, his dad invited us over for dinner, and we were praying before dinner, and then at the end, he just kind of started eating without saying amen, you know. I mean, aren't you supposed to say amen? And he just kind of said, like, we don't say amen in this house because we just always keep praying. And you're like, it's good practice right there. It's, it's good practice, you know. Let's not get weird about it. Okay. But let's pray always. Let's pray without ceasing. Let's have a passion and a, and a priority for prayer. Let's intercede all the time. Let's be D.L. Moody's and in the car with our buddies. Just like, just, let's pray about that. Let's pray about that. Let's pray about that. But don't freak people out, you know. Like, it's hard enough to get people in church, so if you're the weird prayer guy, like, you, you feel me. Okay. And then the fourth part of our prayer, fourth, is giving of thanks. Giving, giving of thanks. You know, the word in the New Testament tells us that, that the unregenerate heart or the person that's not born again, someone that is depraved and just as wicked as any sexual sin and immorality, that wickedness and witchcraft that you could think of, it's right up there is unthankfulness and not a thankful heart. That's always a good check of where we're at in our walk with the Lord. Am I a thankful person? Am I just always thanking the Lord, thanking people, thanking the Lord for the people? Um, that's a mark of a believer, someone who has the Holy Spirit in them. You know, even in the book of Philippians chapter 4, when we're told, hey, don't worry about anything, but in all things with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to the Lord. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ, in Christ Jesus. Okay? So we often, it's like, yeah, hey, are you worried about something? Pray about it. Okay, dear Lord, help me with this, that, and the other. In Jesus' name, amen. What about with thanksgiving? Because when we're thankful, we're remembering what he's already done in our life to show his past faithfulness. And as Oswald Chambers, I think it was, said, his past faithfulness demands our present trust. 
when we're in those times of stress and anxiety and worry and crying out to the Lord, thank him. Thank him for his faithfulness. It also is praise to him and he's worthy of that glory. But notice it says that this supplication and prayer and intercession and giving of thanks, it's to be made for all men. And that's the context of this passage, that it's prayer going out, not selfishly, but rather for humanity. It's to be made for all men, the totality of men. We're to be praying for every kind of men. I like in Genesis chapter 18. When the Lord informs Abraham that he's going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah because of its great wickedness. And then begins this incredible passage where Abraham stands almost between God and man and pleads and intercedes that, that Sodom not be completely destroyed. He has a care for people. And so he begins almost like this uh, deliberation with God where he says, Lord, if there's a hundred men, would you destroy a whole city for a hundred righteous men? Yes, it's a wicked city, but there's got to be a remnant there. Would you really destroy? And the Lord says, no, no, you're praying, you're interceding for people. And, and I'm hearing you, Abraham, I won't destroy this wicked Sodom if there's a hundred righteous men. And then the numbers, I've got the passage in front of me, so forgive me if I paraphrase a bit and I don't get the numbering exactly right. But if it, you know, what about, Lord, just hear me out. What if there's only 50 righteous? Would you destroy a whole city? And even those 50, if there's 50, I hear you. I hear you, Abraham. I hear you. I won't, I won't destroy it if there's 50. Hear me out, Lord. 30. I won't destroy it. Hear me out. 10. Okay, I won't. Lord, just one more time. Just, if you just could just, yeah. Uno. Uno. All right, if there's Uno, you know. Uh, if the, if the, you just hear the pleading heart for souls in Abraham. They, they would be saved, that they wouldn't be just wiped off the face of the earth. It's a great example for us as Christians to be those who pray for the people, for all of the people. As Jesus said, when he walked into the temple and he was grieved with people getting ripped off, there in the temple, as the, as, the, as the Jews were selling the wares and were selling the sacrifices at inflated costs, and Jesus was grieved at the commercialization of the sacrificial system that was to be a picture of the redemption of mankind through the Son of God's sacrifice, and he just was grieved in his heart. He was angry, so he flipped over the tables, and he said, is it not written in Isaiah chapter 56 that my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, yet you've made it a den of thieves? His house is to be a house of prayer for the nations. And I believe that Calvary Chapel of Crook County is that. We have heard the mission of God and we are a people that pray for the people that have never heard of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the mission of our church. But I would ask you, is that the mission of you? Privately as a person, as an individual, but also have you come in with us at Calvary Chapel and locked arms with us to be a part of this prayer force for all of the nations? Be an Abraham. That's what the church is to be. 
confession time. I wasn't here in here during the prayer cast video. I don't even know who it was. Who, who was it? I, that's Andrea. That is an incredible country. Been there a few times. No, what was it? <laughs> also, Algeria. Beautiful this time of year. Algeria. We've actually prayed for Algeria multiple times in this church. Told you sitting next to a man from Bangladesh on the way back from Nepal. And I was able to say, we prayed, we've probably prayed three times as a church for Bangladesh, for your native land. And I just was able to share the gospel because God has a heart for Algeria. Uh, or, or Bangladesh in that case, but also Algeria, right? It's all the same. No. Uh, so you've got all of these nations that many of them have never even heard of the gospel of Jesus, and no one's even trying to get the gospel there. So we come and we stand in the gap and we pray, Lord, get the gospel in there. Send me if I'm to be a part of this. Send out workers into the harvest field. As Jesus says in Matthew chapter 9, as he looked up and he said, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Pray, therefore, that the Lord of the harvest send out workers into the harvest field. I exhort primarily, first off, young pastor to your church, that prayers, supplications, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all men everywhere. John Stott tells a story of some years ago. I attended a public worship in a certain church. The pastor was absent on vacation, and a lay elder led the pastoral prayer. He prayed that the pastor might enjoy a good holiday, which was fine, and that two lady members of the congregation might be healed, which is also fine. We should pray for the sick. And Stott goes on to say, but that was all. The intercession can hardly have lasted 30 seconds. I came away saddened, sensing that this church worshipped a little village god of their own, devising. There was no recognition of the needs of the world and no attempt to embrace the world in prayer. You guys, we don't want to be that church. We believe that a New Testament church, a spirit-filled church, is not involved in its own parochial, self-centered affairs. That is not a Holy Spirit-filled church. A Holy Spirit is a missionary spirit, so a spirit-filled church is a church that's mission-minded. For the local city of Prineville, Oregon, for the region of Crook, Deschutes County, the state of Oregon, the United States, and globally to the ends of the earth, and especially for those who've never heard the gospel. Because in the eschatological chapters of the Olivet Discourse in Matthew chapter 24, this gospel shall be preached to all the nations, and then the end will come. And half of the world is unreached, and half of the half is unengaged, unreached. Nobody's going there. So start praying, people of this church, because we got to start sending out. It's what we do. Don't say not me, because then it's for sure going to be you. Instead say, how about me? What do you think, Lord? And let him sort that out. Let him do the work in your heart and in your life and open up the doors. F.B. Meyer, a famous preacher, writes the account of waking up one morning early at a conference with A.B. Simpson, who was the founder of the Christian Missionary Alliance movement. 
and he saw A.B. Simpson weeping in prayer as he clutched a globe. Anybody ever? Nobody? I have a globe. (laughs) I think I just discovered a new practice, you know, with it as it sits above my desk. Oh, there's something for you now in my life. You know, put a little wig on it. Okay, no. So anyways, I exhort you that... Let's just rewind 30 seconds and we'll pick back up again. (laughs) Pretend like that never happened. This all men is to include verse 2 for kings and all who are in authority. For kings and all who are in authority. It is, of course, applicable that we would pray for presidents. For our presidents. Don't do it. I don't do it. I just get involved in the stuff going on with the president. And I, I think, dude, you're a billionaire. Let's figure out something with the hair, you know. Um, instead of praying, you know. It's like, how about forget the hair and just start praying for the man. All right? Pray for our president. As you look at the scriptures, he has been divinely, sovereignly placed in this place of office for such a time as this. We all nod our heads, but were we nodding our heads during the last presidency? Many of us were not. We were in grievous error then. I think I prayed more for Barack Obama than I prayed for President Trump. We need to be praying for all of our leaders. We still need to be praying for President Barack Obama, former president, because he still has a major influence over our land. We still need to be praying for him. But this whole hashtag not my president mumbo jumbo stuff is wrong. He is our president. They've been our president. And we are called by the word of God to submit to them and to pray for them. Our kings, our presidents, our vice presidents, their cabinets, our local authorities. And if somebody, i just give a little assignment here. If somebody wants to create a list of people we can start praying for, maybe with pictures, that is nice. Uh, Let's start praying as a church for our national, local government. Let's start praying, and oftentimes we do with the prayer cast videos. We pray for the national leaders of those countries, especially those persecuted countries, which is where we often pray for. Donald Guthrie says, whether the civil authorities are perverted or not, they must be made the subject of prayer. For Christian citizens may in this way influence the course of national affairs, a fact often forgotten except in times of special crisis. Do you guys realize that even if we have a Barack Obama in office, when the people of God pray, God moves in the life of Barack Obama so that the nation is moved to the will of God? When we have a man that is nearly as wicked as President Barack Obama, or I should say nearly as righteous, that way either, you know, I think we would all know that it kind of is the same thing, (laughs) right? Uh, That we would pray for these men, that they would come to know God as the redeemer of their soul. They would come to know the holiness of God and have that just purge away the dark places of their heart and illuminate their minds and their souls so they can be men led by the spirit of God. Let's pray that over our president. Let's pray that over our future presidents, that God be preparing them. But let's get away from being an enemy of our king. And let's get towards praying for these that the Lord says 
have a special office at this time in human history. If you look at Romans chapter 13, verse 1, it says, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. And I'm telling you this, when Paul was writing to the Romans, they had much more wicked stuff going on in office than we did. Okay? And so for, this, was, this was a shocker uh, for, for the Roman Christians to hear. For there's no authority except from God, and authorities that exist are appointed by God. Romans 13, 2. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God. And those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister. An avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore, you must be subject, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this, you pay taxes, for they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Render, therefore, to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. I remember hearing the story when I was probably 18 years old. I think it was John Corson, Pastor John Corson from Applegate, uh, speeding along, you know, trying to get to church on time, and he gets pulled over. And the officer comes up, and, and you know, John thinks, I'm going to schmooze my way out of this ticket. And so he quotes from Romans 13, and he says, Officer, just thank you so much for your service. I know that you are God's minister to me for good. He didn't realize that this, that this officer actually went to his church and knew the rest of the verse. It says, ah, but if you do evil, be afraid, for I do not bear the sword in vain. Right? So God has set up our governing authorities, the system. He, he sets the lines and the bounds of our country so that his glory may spread across the world. He set these men up on, on, in civil authorities, uh, legal authorities, uh, ecclesiological authorities, um, domestic authorities, so that ministry can take place. And God calls us to be in submission. He calls us to be in fear. He calls us to be in honor toward those for the purpose of the, uh, the latter part of verse 3. Is it 3 that we're in? No, 2. That we may lead a quiet and peaceable life. Let's just let that simmer for a second. Supplications, prayers, intercessions, giving of thanks for kings. Well, let's back up. For all men. So all men. Think of who that encompasses. It's kind of like an all men sort of thing. Kings. And all who are in authority. So we've got that fourfold just prayer life over these, over really the world. <laughs> There's universality to it. And it says, so that we could lead, lead a quiet and peaceable life. In relationship to the world around us, we are to be behaving in a tranquil and well-ordered way. We are to have dignity 
in our demeanor. As Romans tells us, if it's possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceable with all men. If there's anything on your end that you can do to be peaceable, then do it. Paul tells us, he hopes that we would lead a quiet life and mind our own business. That's part of this quiet and peaceableness. And so as we pray for our president and for our leaders, and we come against opposition towards the values that we hold dear, we'd we begin to look at the opposition through the lens that has been prayed. Now, right now, when you look at the opposition to your worldview or your political agenda or your moral values, and many of them rightly so, many of them biblical, do you look at those opposers through the lens that has been praying for them? And we're going to see in verse 3, 4, and 5 what we're praying for them about. Many of, I mean, you know, here we are. We're in Prineville, right? It'd be different preaching this in other places. But for, you know, for us, we're going through all kinds of environmental issues. We're going through the gun debate. We're going through the abortion agenda of our state we look at the picketers on this side or the picketers on that side. We see millennials. We see hipsters. We see those sickos with thick rim glasses, and we know right away they're weirdos. I'm not wearing tight pants. It's not the same thing. I have boots on. You can wear, it just depends on what you're wearing with the thick glasses. Okay, anyways. But you look at the millennials, you look at the hipsters, you look at the Democrats, you look at the, you know, whatever. We apply, the, we're in Prineville, so we're just kind of, we're leaning that direction, right? Have you been praying? I would submit we have not. I would submit we are not praying for the other side. We are not even praying for the side that we value. We're not even praying for the power of the Holy Spirit to come upon all believers that we wouldn't advance a right, a left, a red, or a blue, but we would just go toward advancing the kingdom of God, which is full of peace and goodness. And so in our Facebook posts, in our tweets, in our marching, in our picketing, Things that we have rights to do and things that can be good and profitable. Are we quiet and peaceable in the way that we do it? Are we godly and reverent, Paul tells Timothy? In the way that we do it, does it show that we are children of Jesus Christ? And above anything else, we're about his agenda. We show piety in our methods. We show godliness in our methods. We show a good form of religion in our methods. We are dignified 
We ought to be. As Peter tells us, we are a chosen generation, people, a royal priesthood. That's us. We've been chosen. Royal and chosen. It's just roisin. It just makes it faster to say it that way. We are his special people. Not so we can be right and shove it down their throat, but so that we can proclaim the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. We are these people so that we can proclaim and praise, so that we can witness and so that we can worship. Is that behind everything you do to help make a stand? We once were not a people, but are now the people of God. We had not obtained mercy, but now we have obtained mercy. When we begin to look at the other side, we see ourselves. Yeah, amen. Can I get an amen? Boom, out of the mouth of babes. We see, the, we see them. You know, I, I saw some gun control meme this week of a hipster gal with short hair and, of course, the thin rim. It was more of like a this type of thick rim glasses, you know, and she was going like this, you know, and it's like everyone looks at her. You're the, just the dumbest, just, just you, that is exactly what I'm talking. I don't even know what you said or really what side of the line you're standing on, but just look at you. That's, that is the epitome of them. There's so much wrong with that. But what we ought to say is, man, if, if her heart is coming from where I think it is, she's not a people, but I pray that she will be a people. She's not obtained mercy, I pray that she would obtain mercy. Because that, that was Rory. And only by the grace of God. I'm not even talking about that I'm right on this side or that side. I don't even know that I have a side. <laughs> But I know what I think when I see these that friends are posting. I'm like, yeah! Ugh! It is not a heart that's been praying for people. All men everywhere. Verse 3 tells us that this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. Now we would first of all think like, yeah, okay, yeah. Living peaceably and godly with uh, godliness and reverence and just with this quiet heart, that's good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. That's not what he's talking about. That is good and acceptable, but that's not what he's talking about. The context and the language is pointing to prayer for these people, praying for kings, praying for all who are in authority. That is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. And I am so thankful that there are passages in the scripture that just spell it out for us that there are things that are good and acceptable in the sight of God. Because I need that. It's just a little extra ump for us that like, just in case you were wondering, start praying for people. And then as we pray for the people, then we begin to leave these, lead these quiet, peaceable, godly, reverent, Lives that are more effective than the loud, obnoxious, boisterous lives. The command is connected for this universal prayer for the world. And so this ought to be our standard for public worship. Is it good and does it please God our Savior? 
I like that he says God our Savior here. I've, uh, the Lord has just moved me kind of in light of the New Year resolution thing to come back to just intense scripture memorization and I'm memorizing first Timothy up through our text today this week and I'm just noticing like Paul doesn't just talk about God or Jesus you know like a lot of us like talk about God God Jesus he is like I don't know what it'd be I'm not an English teacher but I suppose adjectives or something like that like God our savior like, that's a good practice, don't you think? When we're, when we're talking about the Lord, let your heart go just a little bit further. Jesus Christ, our Lord. And this is the second time in verse, um, verse 1. We see God our Savior, chapter 1-1. One, one, God our Savior and Jesus Christ, our hope. Talk about Jesus that way. I think it'll show the world even more what these deities in our life the deity i should say the trinity what it what he means to us god my savior jesus christ my lord my hope three times in first timothy paul refers to god as savior showing the salvific will of the father and it is that god the savior who desires something in verse four He desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. He'll come back to this in verse 6 as he tells us what Jesus has done. But let's just read this again. God our Savior, see it at the end of verse 3, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Let me... uh, hop over to a great mentor of mine, Alistair Begg, and let me, let me have him be a, a help for us in this verse. And let me explain why first. I come to verse 4, and I immediately begin to take my framework of the scriptures, maybe my bent in theology, and I kind of take verse four and I cut it out and I wave it in front of faces. Ha ha! He desires all men everywhere to be saved, sucka, and to come to know the truth. All right? Whereas various camps would also rip this out and say, all means this or all means that. And we don't even really know. And it causes a lot of conflict. This verse right here, verses 4 through 6, can cause great controversy. And we could come together and argue for hours and try to champion our theological framework. And so with that being said, I was very thankful through just the Lord leading me to memorize this week. And just as you go over and over and over and over and over and over the passages, you just begin to like see the context of what Paul's even talking about here. And so let me just read my friend. Yes, he's my friend. Though he's on the radio, I've had dinner with him, so now he's my friend. We're on a first-name basis. Um, He's Alistair! And I'm Rory. No. Rory Rogers. I'll never forget that name. That was a great day. Okay. 
The great temptation here, we, let's get back to Jesus for one second. Okay. The great temptation here is to use these verses for a big excursus on the merits and demerits of your particular systematic theology, particularly any predilections that you have toward Calvinism and Reformed theology. You can stay up for three nights in a row arguing back and forward about these issues, and I'll tell you how to avoid it. Remember that you need a big T and a small F. You need a big T and a small F. A big text and a small framework. All of us have some kind of framework with which we come to the Bible. We have to have some kind of system of theology in a Trinitarian fashion. Therefore, we know there's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. We understand that Jesus was predicted in the Old Testament and discovered in the Gospel. That helps us to understand our Bible. When we move beyond that to a system of theology, which have the extrapolations of the best of men, and we then seek to make our big F, that's our F, right? Our big F framework squeeze this text into submission, we put ourselves in danger. That is why anytime we come to anything like this, you've got to say, big T, small F. I feel like this is sign language for F. Good, nobody knows. Yes. This, for real, okay, it's not just okay, it's F. Okay, big T, small F, we all know now. It's things like this that help you remember it forever, because you're like, I don't know what's happening here, but, okay. Anytime you come to anything like verse 4 through 6, you've got to say, big T, we F. I need to bring my framework under the text rather than squeeze the text to fit my framework. I can grab my commentaries off the shelf and put all the ones with one position on the left, all the ones with another position on the right, and the authors can come in and argue with each other until we die. The answer is, get the scriptures out and let the scriptures speak. And take the scriptures for what they say when they say it. So what is the context of 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4. I'm telling you, as you spend time memorizing it, you begin to have the context sink in. The context is there are a group of people who are exclusivists, who are trying to argue that God is concerned only for a certain rarefied group of people who toe the line in a certain way. For instance, and it's in our culture today, God's an American, God only cares about Americans, only Americans are God's chosen people, okay? That would be part of the weirdo group, similar to what Paul is talking about here, okay? And Paul says, I'll have none of that. I want you to understand that the issue of the gospel is for all kinds of people. Kind is inserted as it is an accurate way to understand it. What is being described is the magnanimity of God towards some of the most unlikely people. 
Rather than bowing to the heiress who thought that God wished the destruction of sinners and the salvation of the righteous, or that salvation was the promise to a small number of spiritual elite, Paul says, let me underscore the universal, global scope of God's appeal for sinners. Remember last week we had a vocabulary word of the day? Me neither, I don't even remember what it was. It was good, I'm just telling you, it was real good. Today's is, because it kept coming up in my reading, magnanimity. Let's all say it together. Magnanimity. If anybody's not saved here today and they want to get saved after hearing the word magnanimity, just raise your hand where you're at, you can get saved right now. Probably not after just hearing the word magnanimity. But what it means is, very generous and forgiving, especially toward a rival or someone less powerful than himself. So we have in this verse, Paul is trying to get across the magnanimity of God. That's what he's trying to do here. Trying to tell the haters that God is very generous. He's the God of salvation, and he said it twice already. He's going to say it again in the book. God is very forgiving, even towards those who are enemies of his. By saying, verse 4, he's not contradicting himself in Ephesians chapter, chapter 1 when he talks about sovereign election and predestination. Or Romans chapter 8, verses 29 through 31, speaking of predestination and election and the sovereignty of God. He's not contradicting himself by saying that God our Savior desires all men to be saved. Well, you said there were elect and you said there were certain predestined. And, and now you're saying that all men, you know, and, and he's not contradicting himself. Okay. Donald Guthrie, a professor of New Testament theology, says, even if it's difficult to reconcile this statement with Paul's teaching elsewhere on the sovereignty of God, no one would deny that these words fairly represent the magnanimity of divine benevolence. How forgiving, how loving God's love is to the whole world. That God would have, Guthrie goes on to say, that God would have all men to be saved is shown as well as we shall see by his provision of a ransom that is sufficient for all men. Look at verse 6. He gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. So, Guthrie says, quoting Wilson, the church must never hug the gospel to itself, but must always seek to fulfill its commission to preach the good news to every creature. Paul isn't trying to be an Arminianist in verse 4 so that he can counter Paul the Calvinist in Ephesians chapter 1. Paul's trying to preach and speak to a culture that was elitist in its preaching of the gospel and he's saying, stop it! Open up your eyes! God is magnanimous. I had to look at it. He's forgiving. And it's so great. It's universal. He desires and wishes and wants and purposes and enjoys and is of the opinion that all men in totality 
every kind of human being would be saved, as we learned last week, that they would be healed, that they would be rescued, and that they would be delivered. As Ezekiel says, do I have any pleasure that the wicked should die, says the Lord God, and not that he should turn from his way and live, as he says in chapter 3. 18 verse 32 for i have no pleasure in the death of the one who dies says the lord god therefore turn and live i desire that all men would be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth you read the scripture that says that god so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life for god did not send his son into the world to condemn the world that, that the world through him might be saved. goes on and on and on. All men, world, a global universal focus. And that is part of the great commission. Go into the world, preach the gospel to every creature or every nation. But in our wills and desires as we speak of God, we, we do well not to confuse it with decree. Okay? Do not confuse desire with decree. It does not say he has decreed that all men everywhere be saved because he's God Almighty in sovereignty. Boom! Everybody would be saved. He's not decreed that. Yet he has, in his magnanimity, desire reconciliation for the whole world we're wrapping up soon but to quote beg to help us with this he has has he decreed that all men be saved obviously not or else all men would be saved therefore there's a distinction between what he desires and what he decrees how can that possibly be i don't know but i know that this is and therefore i put my hand over my mouth Instead of trying to squeeze the word of God into my framework, and I rise on the highest pinnacle of the earth and then proclaim the gospel to everyone who has ears to hear. And I know that God will redeem those whom he's purposed to save, and I know the magnanimity of his love extends to the whole world, and I do not yet understand how those two things, the secretive and the declarative word will of God, come together. But that's his problem. It's a problem for him. It's not my concern. Beg goes on to say, some are concerned that if you preach the gospel to the wrong person, they might get saved. In one other place, he's called it a character of your own mind. Oh, I'm not sure you're the group. What group? If you breathe, you're in the group. If you've got ears to hear, you're in the group. And if you choose to reject his love and his grace and his mercy, it's your own fault, not God's. Donald Guthrie said these words fairly represent the magnanimity of the divine benevolence. The words all men must be linked with the all of verse 1. Intercession for all men could be justified only on the ground of God's willingness to save all. For there's one God, verse 5, 
and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Let's have the worship team come up. The unity of the Godhead, one God, one mediator. The word mediator speaks of a reconciler. In another place, Jesus is called the advocate or the helper or the intercessor. And he is the one who stands in the gap. I think it was Ezekiel who was praying out and he said, Is there anyone, the Lord cried out, Is there anyone who will come and stand in the gap between God and men? Job says in chapter 9, is there anyone who will come and mediate between God and myself that he may lay his hand on us both? Is there anybody who can help me and advocate for me and intercede for me? And Paul says, there is. There's one God and there's one mediator between God and man. The God-man, Jesus Christ. It's important that Jesus became a man. Hebrews chapter 1 tells us that Jesus is better than the angels because he created the angels. In Hebrews chapter 2, the author tells us that Jesus is better than uh, the angels because he also became a man. And now he can sympathize with us because he's been through everything we'll ever be through. No angel has ever done that. So the creator of angels is better than angels because I created y'all. And I'm also better than angels because I've bridged the gap. I've suffered and I've been tempted and I've been murdered and I've been betrayed by my best friend. I've been through every part of the human experience and yet I never sinned. And because of that, I'm able to be a faithful middleman between God and man. And I will ever live to pray for you. In fact, the language is I will he ever lived to intercede for you. We have one mediator, guys. There's one man who can save us and bridge the gap and stand in the gap and be our advocate. And in Acts chapter 4, it says that there is no other name among men given under heaven by which men must be saved than the name of Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And because he's the only way, we need to have prayers for the, for the entire world to be saved. Because we've got people, they are people with, with feelings and emotions and hopes and dreams. They are people who know that they've sinned. They have consciences that are guilty. Their conscience knows that there is someone out there and I have I have grievously erred against him. But I have no way to remedy this. And so I'm going to just try really hard. I'm going to work really hard. I'm going to invent all these ways to just really try to be a good person. And I'm not going to, I can't do it. I still can't do it. I still, so I'm going to invent like a little prayer stick with a string and a ball on the end. And I'm just going to, woo, 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 woo. And if I just keep spinning it fast enough, then, then I'm going to be good enough. Then I'm going to, oh my God, oh my God, oh no, oh no, oh, oh no, oh no, okay, okay. I'm going to create, a, I'm gonna create a, a, a thing in a river that's going to spin like a windmill. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to create good karma for me. And if it just, oh no, I, I don't feel like it's working inside of me. No, that thing, oh, a twig came down and jammed it. And now, oh no, oh, oh, oh. I hang some flags across these trees. And there's just beautiful colors, and it looks like a used car lot. But you know what? That, people like used car lots. I think God likes used car lots. So he's going to like this, and, and I'm going to be, no, 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 it's not good enough. 
And so the Lord Jesus is coming to these people in dreams, and he's telling them, what you're doing is not enough. It's not enough, and I'm going to send people up into your mountains or out into these deserts, and they are going to tell you how to know your creator and be forgiven of your sins. That is why we pray for Algeria. That is why we pray for Pakistan. That's why we pray earnestly for North Korea. When we look at that dude and he's got the high and tight in a way that no one else can pull it off and he's wearing that, you know, Star Wars outfit, you know, and it's just, you see him and it's don, 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 and you just go, oh, no, you should say, I once was without mercy, but I have obtained mercy. I once was not a people, but now I'm a people by the mercy and grace of God. And I look at Kim Jong-un and I say, what God could do. I pray for all men everywhere because there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man. And he is, he's a saving God who sent his saving son that through his work on the cross, all men might be saved.